Praise God for his grace and his clear testimonies. Um, it's really encouraging. Well, some months back, I was reading um, through the book of Numbers in my uh, daily reading, and I found uh, Numbers 11 to 14 to be particularly helpful. Um, kind of forced to slow down, and I ended up camping out there in the wilderness um, with the Israelites for a little while and saw some, some pretty important lessons. Um, and I think it's appropriate to take a, uh, another week out of Luke and focus on, on some things that we should see in, in these chapters. In fact, um, I think they go really well with some of the things we heard in those testimonies. Um, we might not normally have high expectations for the book of Numbers. <laughs> if that was on your list for your daily Bible reading, you might not be particularly excited. You might need you know, extra strong coffee that morning. Um, but those low expectations might actually p- be part of the problem. We should expect the Israelites and certainly the Old Testament as a whole to be helpful to us. There's nothing new under the sun. Their temptations then were like our temptations now. The inner workings of their hearts were like the inner workings of our hearts. Read the book of Hebrews and you'll see that um, is pretty clear that they are a lesson for us. Or think of the text that Jay read um, in 1 Corinthians. It's supposed to be, they're supposed to be an example for us. So let's pray and ask God to help us to understand his instruction um, from their example, negative though it may be, that their example would guard us from the cravings and the idolatry that led to their downfall. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word this morning. Incline our hearts to your testimonies. I pray that we would see that we do not live by bread alone, but on every word, by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And I pray that your word and your promises would become more real to us this morning. That your voice would be more decisive than anything else in our experience or in our circumstances. So we need you to maybe in some cases beget faith, give faith where people are not trusting in you as their Savior and their Lord. And for all of us, Lord, who are Christians, we need you to increase our faith. We believe. Help our unbelief. We are so prone, spring-loaded to unbelief. And we pray that you would mercifully increase our faith this morning. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Okay, so we're obviously not going to read through all four chapters, um, but I would encourage you to. Uh, If you haven't already, it was in the bulletin last week, so maybe some of you have done that. Um, Turn to Numbers 11, and I'm going to draw your attention to a few parts as we go along and look at this section. So, as you're turning there, uh, remember where we're located in the story. 
Uh, The people of Israel have been brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. God's mighty hand has rescued them, redeemed them. The Lord's protected them. He's provided for them. But they still have hard hearts. And those hard hearts go public in the forms of complaining and craving, sinful craving, and self-pitiful weeping. They're just crying over and over again. If you read these chapters, like, what are they whining about? Um, So it happens over and over again. Look at Numbers 11.1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the, place of that, the name of that place was called Taborah, which means burning, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. So they made it very clear right here that they would rather be back in Egypt, in slavery, under the heavy yoke of King Pharaoh, than led by Yahweh, the true God, through the wilderness to the promised land. Okay, so these desires are so strong that they actually have this blinding black is white, white is black effect. Okay, notice what happens. They give a good report of a bad land. Do you see that? They look back at Egypt with this weird wistfulness. They're almost nostalgic. Oh, we remember the fish, free fish, all you can eat fish. Free fish? It cost them nothing? Really? Really? Under slavery. That was free? The melons. Okay? You might not be turned on by leeks and, and I don't know, some of us Italian folk, the garlic. You know, but, <clears throat> but look down at verse 18. Again, bottom line, slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh in their blinded view at this point is better than freedom in the wilderness under Yahweh. So look at 11.18. You've wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. I mean, it kind of sounds like the typical eulogy at the funeral of a scoundrel. Have you ever had this happen? Oh, he was such a great guy. Revisionist history. All the bad reality that everybody knows, by the way, is rubbed out for the sake of the moment. Only in this case, it's worse. The, the, the revisionist history in the funeral parlor mainly arises out of a source, this kind of sense of we need to be tactful and sensitive toward those who are grieving their loss. You're not going to say, oh, he was a scoundrel. I mean, at least there's some tact and decorum driving the deceit. But in the wilderness, the revisionist history has no other-centeredness about it, even if the other-centeredness is twisted a little bit. It's simply blind unbelief, and it's actually veiled anger writ large. Okay, their hard parts are going public. So they allow their appetites to commandeer their memories in the service of their idolatrous agenda, their cravings. Their desires commandeer their memory and rewrite the history to serve their desires. You see how that happens? 
they look back and slavery looked like freedom. They're homesick for the house of oppressive slavery. What is going on here? Remember Korah's rebellion? It happens a few chapters later in chapter 16. There's a bunch of leaders that rise up against Moses and Aaron. In response, Moses sends a couple of these guys, sends for them and says, hey, come, you know, come on up. Let's talk about this. Here's their response. Number 16, 12. They said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? <laughs> wait, wait, no, you're going to the land of milk and honey. You didn't come out of the land of milk and honey. That was slavery. How does that happen? A while back, we had Book of the Month, Russell Moore, Tempted and Tried. Excellent book. In that book, he has a great chapter entitled Starving to Death, Why We'd Rather Be Fed Than Fathered. And he's got some great insights in that chapter. He shows how Adam and Eve were tested in the garden and their appetites won out over the Word of God. And then how Israel in the wilderness did the same thing. And then he writes this. In their desert trek, Israel came to conclude that God was not a father. They started to theorize that God had brought them into the wilderness to condemn them rather than save them. The test revealed that the word of God was a slave to their stomachs and not the other way around. As they engaged in slave nostalgia, the test revealed they wanted a pharaoh more than a father. They would rather be slaves than sons. So we should pay attention here. This happens to us more than we know. Okay, so there's a songwriter, Sarah Groves. Um, my wife and daughters really like her music, and, and she's got some good songs, some good lyrics. She wrote a song called Painting Pictures in Egypt. Listen to a few of the words here. I've been painting pictures of Egypt, leaving out what it lacked. The future seems so hard, and I want to go back. The past is so tangible, I know it by heart. Familiar things are nev never easy to discard. I was dying for some freedom, but now I hesitate to go. I'm caught between the promise and the things I know. Does that resonate at all? Have you ever longed for the freedom, quote-unquote, that you had? Maybe if you are a Christian before you became a Christian. Oh, I was so free and things were so exciting. Boring now. Life was a lot easier back then. Oh, wait, I was on my way to hell and I didn't have any hope or peace. But what do we do? We Photoshop all the chains out of the picture. That's why Psalm 73 resonates so much with us as we read it. And thank God that he inspired a psalm like that that's so honest and it's right where we live. So the psalmist says, truly God is good to Israel. I know it's true. I know it's true to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They don't have any pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That was actually a compliment back then. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest. And then he had to come into the sanctuary to get reoriented. Okay, so you and I, we're in the wilderness, folks. We are being tested and tried. You look around, there's all these people that seem to be just frolicking in their little resort oases. Must be nice. 
Okay, so they don't have Jesus, but must be nice. I'd love to have this or not have that. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. We can't buy that lie. Or you know what we're like? We're like a codependent girlfriend who keeps going back to her abusive boyfriend. I really know he loves me. And outside, we see that that's not a good thing for her. But sometimes when you're in it, you're blinded to it. How is it that Christians return to the vomit of drugs and porn? How is it that we hate our gluttony and we keep going back to food as Pharaoh? Maybe we need to pay a little bit more attention to the Pentateuch. It's really practical. Okay, so listen again. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So when they were tested in the wilderness, they got sand in their eye. And, and rather than looking back with the eye of faith, looking and assessing that whole Egypt thing, seeing the goodness and the faithfulness of God to rescue them and bring them out with his mighty hand and show his supremacy over Pharaoh, ten plagues. They looked back in unbelief and they gave a good report of a bad land. When you've got sand in your spiritual eye like this, it doesn't just affect how you look back, though it's pretty clear that it does. That kind of blindness also affects the way that we look forward. I guess from your perspective, I should be doing it back, forward. So watch how that happens just two, two chapters later. Okay? Well, we'll see that in just a second. So they've complained. They've craved, craved meat. Um, God shows them his miraculous ability to provide for them. Once again, he blows in literally tons of meat <laughs> out of nowhere. I mean, Moses is like, how in the world? Do you, you know how many people are here? How long this would take? He feeds well over a million people for a full month by blowing in these birds. <laughs> that many birds. Okay? So many birds that this wind springs up, brings quail from the sea, let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on that side around the camp and about two cubits. A cubit is 18 inches, so like a yardstick full of quail for a day's journey any way around the camp. That's a lot of birds, okay? Now you can see why they could feed a million people for a month. People rise up and gather the quail. Does that open their eyes? In chapter 13, the Lord told Moses it was time to send the spies into the promised land to scope out the land that he was giving to them. He had promised to give them this land. So after 40 days of reconnaissance, you know, the, the spies on the reconnaissance mission, they come back with this huge cluster of grapes. And, and yet, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, they also come back with a whole lot of fear. And that fear goes public in the form of a deceitful marketing campaign. Turn ahead to Numbers 13, 31. Then the men who had gone up with Caleb said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. Okay, fair enough. I mean, God isn't in the equation yet, but at least that's partially true. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land 
through which we've gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. Where did that come from? And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. There, there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. These are giants, big Goliath-type people. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So they make it really clear that they would rather remain homeless in the wilderness, or go back to Egypt, obviously, than enter this giant-infested promised land with Yahweh the giant killer, fighting for them to fulfill his promises. Okay, so those fears are so strong, stronger to them than God's word, his promises, that they have this blinding, black is white, white is black effect. Same thing with look back. Notice what happens. They give this bad report of a good land. Before it was a good report of a bad land. Now it's a bad report of a good land. A good land flowing with milk and honey, filled with grapes, fit for a giant king suddenly becomes a bad land. This land devours its inhabitants. So they lie to others about the land out of fear. Looking forward, they actually are forecasting grief and loss. Have you ever done that? Have you ever forecast grief and failure and loss? It's called worry. It's underneath a lot of our depression and even our anger. Fear and anxiety usurp. They they kind of start to rule us and they usurp faith. God is removed from the equation. Obstacles, which God promised to remove, are believed to be insurmountable. So the path of life starts to seem like a death trap. So what do we do? We want to shrink back. And we're even willing to lie to ourselves and to others in order to protect ourselves from our predictions. Okay, we should pay attention here. This happens more than we know. Has the path of life ever seemed to you like a death trap? Death to your happiness, death to your reputation, death to your freedom. Okay, how often does our flesh, our sinful nature, our earthly appetites rise up and say, oh no, you're going to die if you give that up. If you do that, or, or if I don't have that, or I'm going to die. How could I live without this or that? Okay, we do this more than we know. This is not stuff to take lightly. This is dangerous blindness. blindness. Yahweh had worked this miraculous deliverance. He had gloriously shown his supremacy over Pharaoh and his armies. He worked these miracles of provision and protection. Remember, their clothing didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. Their sandals didn't wear out. He promised to take them into the promised land. Yeah, the wilderness was between them and the promised land, but on the other side of the wilderness was the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. And yet they read it, they interpreted it as hate. They forecasted death and destruction. Deuteronomy 1 says this, The spies brought the fruit from the land, yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. You see how backwards that is? They just read it as hate, his love to rescue them from Egypt under the the oppression of slavery, to bring them lovingly into The promised land is read as hate. They had sand in their eye, and that sand was more decisive than the word of God, the promises of his faithfulness. 
And so they looked forward and they mistook love for hate. They interpreted the loving discipline and the testing to be cruelty and to be hate. How does that happen? We should, we should pay attention here. It happens to us too more than we know. Okay, we considered the nature of our citizenship last week. Um, there's some good connections with what we considered last week with this here. We as Christians, we live in the wilderness. Okay, I'm not just waxing spiritual here and being sermonic. Okay, this is a biblical theme. Jesus went to the cross to accomplish a second exodus, a greater exodus, to redeem us from a slavery that's much deeper and more serious than Pharaoh. We are elect exiles, like it says in 1 Peter 1.1. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. Where are we? We're in the wilderness en route to the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. So the example of the Israelites is very appropriate. The writer of the Hebrews does this, and 1 Corinthians 10 does this, as well as other places. So the warnings that come from these examples are really important for us to hear and to heed. So what do you do when you've got sand in your eye? You get sand in your eye like this? Anybody? I mean, okay, you don't want to raise your hand. I did. Um, I think if we're honest, we all get sand in our eye like this. We look back, not with the eyes of faith. We look forward, not with the eyes of faith. And you know what? We are all going to inevitably look back and look forward. The question is whether we're going to look back and forward with sand in our eye or with grace in our eye, filling our vision. Okay, so as we look back, will it be, point three on the outline if you're using that, is it going to be revisionist history or is it going to be a rehearsal of history? Okay, we can, again, be tempted to do revisionist history. We just rub out all the blessings and the grace that God has showered into our lives and we upplay all the hard things. And we look back and we listen to a good report. We make a good report of a bad land. And it's nothing but a lie. But rather than revisionist history, how about historical rehearsal? Let's use our memories to serve our faith with real history, real salvation history, faithfulness of God history. Like Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not his, all his benefits. And then he starts rehearsing them, reminding himself of God's grace in the present because he's not prone to bless the Lord all the time. I need to remember historical faithfulness. Or how about Ephesians 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is historical salvation history rehearsal. And it just leads Paul to bless the name of the Lord. So we need to repent of our tendency to do revisionist history. And we need to preach the gospel to our unbelieving hearts when we're struggling in the wilderness. And the gospel faithfulness of God, that can get the sand out of our eyes. 
It can wash our eyes and help us see reality clearly so that we can keep going forward in faith in the wilderness, even through the heat of testing when the sand is getting kicked up and we want to go back. Okay, so historical faithfulness, rehearsal, will serve our faith in the present. But there's also grace for our unbelieving meteorology attempts, okay, when we forecast. Are we going to forecast grief? Or what about forecasting grace? So again, in the wilderness, in the heat of testing, the sand gets kicked up. We want to shrink back, hunker down, go back, anything but forward, and we forecast grief and failure and loss. Well, what if we just started to forecast grace? What if we forecast faithfulness? Is there any good reason (laughs) to do that? Has God given us any good reasons to forecast his faithfulness? Expect him to be faithful in the future, whether that's five minutes from now or 50 years from now or 50 million years from now? To expect more grace? Is there a good reason for that? Just, just listen to 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is rehearsal of faithfulness in history. And now he's going to forecast and focus on grace and faithfulness. He did this, born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, for you who by God's power are being guarded, kept through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness, it's not purposeless, it's not gratuitous. God is doing this. He's overseeing all of this so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the future in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or Jeremiah, in the midst of horrific circumstances, this I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. They're going to be new tomorrow morning. I'm going to forecast faithfulness. So when the sand of a fearful future gets kicked up, the gospel, the promises of God can wash our eyes and keep us faithful in the wilderness. How about this one? Great summary of both. He who did not spare his own son, rehearsing salvation history, if he didn't spare the hardest thing, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Forecasting grace. You see that? So the eye of faith is made to look back and forward. And unfortunately, so does the unbelieving eye. And so the question is, is it going to be sand or grace that's decisive as we continue our pilgrimage through the wilderness? When that unbelieving eye looks back, it wants to turn back. When it looks forward, it wants to shrink back. So last point, don't um, last point is turn your back and don't shrink back, okay? When you, when you look back with desire for the house of slavery, you and I, we actually need to turn our back on our desire to turn our back. It's called repentance. It's called denying ourselves and taking up our crosses and following Jesus, and it's the only way to life. 
So when we have those impulses, whether it's revisionist history or whatever we need to labor to look back with historical honesty and rehearse the grace of God, chains are chains no matter how much free fish is, free fish is on the plate. So we can put on the lenses of grumbling and complaining and dissatisfaction for unmet wants, or we can put on the lenses of gratitude for undeserved mercy, and the gospel is going to wash our eyes and protect us from getting more sand in our eyes. And then when we look ahead, we're tempted to forecast, again, nothing but failure and grief, and we need to shrink back from our desire to shrink back. It's called faith. Okay, so it's trusting in the promises of God, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. God is the most important factor in the equation that is the future. When he's in the equation, the obstacles actually become opportunities. Path of life is not a death trap. God's way always leads to life. Okay, certainly the path of life is filled with plenty of self-denial death. But that is the path to true life. Okay, so when we get sand in our eyes, we're going to put on the fear lenses or we're going to put on the faith lenses. Let's not shrink back from our future with God. It may lead through the fire. It may lead through the valley of the shadow of death. But he's going to be with us. And he will never leave us or forsake us. And if he's with us and if he's for us, then who can be against us? So let me just close with a connection with 1 Corinthians 10 again. This was driven home on Friday. You know that promise in 1013? Many of you are probably familiar with it. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I, I didn't feel the weight of the context leading into that passage before Friday. This is on the tail end of these, of the, these example statements about the Israelites. They faced a lot of temptation in the wilderness. And they didn't trust God to be faithful. And they fell. The problem with the temptations we face in the wilderness is that we think they're too much for the word of God. We do this all the time. Please, just stop and be honest with yourself I need to be honest with myself. When you are struggling with something, when you're really anxious about something, and you hear a sermon, or you try to read the Word, or somebody that loves you and knows what's going on tries to encourage you with some truth that you probably know here, but you're not really believing, how often do we say, yeah, I know, but... No temptation. Listen to the grace of this promise. Stated after the examples of those in the wilderness. They had Pharaoh and his armies chasing after them. They had giants they were facing. We can't believe this word. because You don't understand what we're going through right now. No temptation has overtaken you. Your situation is not unique in the true root-level sense. No matter where you are in the present, in the wilderness, no matter how much sand is getting kicked up, they thought no water, no food was too much. They thought no meat was too much. They thought giants in the land was too much. God, you don't understand. No, God 
is faithful. So we need to turn our back on our desire to turn back. We need to shrink back and run. Shrink back from our desire to shrink back and run. And you know what? We need to help each other with this, don't we? We need to help each other see reality with the eyes of faith. When our brothers and sisters are struggling to look back and to look forward in faith, we can help. We can put the lenses on for them and show them what life looks like when grace gets in our eyes. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this word, even though it's a word of warning, would clearly become what it is, a word of grace and love to guard us from those dangerous ditches. I pray that we would see that those kinds of warnings these kinds of warnings that we've considered, even where we may be convicted and think, oh, my faith is so weak. I pray that we would see that you are speaking these warnings because you love us, because the wilderness is hard, and you know our frame, and you know the temptations. Lord Jesus, you have been there in the wilderness, tempted and tried. And you can sympathize with our weaknesses. And so you give us gracious warnings to help us to see your faithfulness. I pray that you would open our eyes. We believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.